0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Punch Kick Choke Chat. I'm in Toronto, and uh, it's 8.30 p.m. my time. You're watching this whenever you feel like, or if it's live, you're with us right now from wherever you are around the globe or the continent. I'm so happy you're here with us, and uh, our guest tonight, I've heard his name since I started martial arts, and I can't wait to explore his world. And uh, you know, in doing our research for the show, I am just super excited to hear what this gentleman has to say tonight, and as always, get to be a fly on the wall. Chill in the back seat while people with higher ranks than me drive around this conversation that I get to point in certain directions. Um, yeah, it's just such an honor to be able to be a part of this show. And it's an honor every week to be able to introduce Sensei Niklaus Suino. I always tell you the the, the, the rank, so you know um, my respect for him and his eighth Dan in Iaido, his sixth Dan for Judo and Japanese Jiu Jitsu. Sensei Suino, I was um, arranging my bookshelves and I won't show them to you because. If you think this is messy here, if I turn my camera, you'd all be aghast. And uh, Sensei Dauphin would not be surprised. And uh, I'm arranging my books. And I was arranging everything in the martial arts category. And, you know, there were two books there from Richard Kim. There were two books there. Uh, Richard Bach, Illusions, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. There's two Funakoshi. You know, I'm going down the line. And then what do I see? I see four Suinos. I see four Suinos. <laughs> There's nobody better represented in my book collection than four Swinos, and uh it goes legacy hanchi legacy's the lead fighter and then four Swinos. um yeah and uh you know i know that our guest tonight has has also uh written his own books and translated uh sensei to fan we got to get writing
1: <laughs> yeah you know that's why i'm a better student Sean, <laughs> because you have four Swinos and i have like 14 Sweenos. That's yeah. why I'm a better
0: <laughs> yeah, <it's>, well, <laughs> So anyways, I just wanted to point that out because that's a true story. And uh, by the way, for those of you on the call who obviously know Sensei Suino through his his martial arts acumen, I've mentioned this book before, The Drinking Game. That's a fiction he wrote that to me sits as highly regarded in my collection. How are you doing tonight, Sensei Suino?
2: Doing great. Thanks, John. Great to see you as always. Uh, I'm hiding out here at the office I've been here all day Um, we're having a snowstorm Um, what I'm sure you know you guys would Canadians would think is uh, is paltry but everyone around (laughs) here is panicking so you know I gotta lay low Uh, thanks so much for the introduction and for mentioning the books Uh, Um, I'm sure you appreciate this because you are committed to your craft Um, you know I just don't like watching tv so I write stuff (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that's just how it happens uh it falls to me each and every time we do this show punch kick choke and chat to introduce sensei randy dofan who's just slightly to my left as i look at the screen right now those of many of you who know him will know much of what i'm about to say but perhaps not all of it so he's a seventh degree in shorin karate and haksuru uh, which he's gotten from Hanji gary legacy who's Slightly on my right in this call, uh, third degree in Jikiden Asian Ryu Iaido, which I awarded to him, um, and also a Shodan uh, first degree in Seite Ryu Iaido from the Canadian Kendo Federation. Uh, one thing I know about Randy is that, like me, he trains and teaches probably five days a week, each and every week, sometimes six or seven. Um, you know, he's constantly training in martial arts and teaching. He does CrossFit, he runs, he does powerlifting, uh, and many, many other harebrained forms of physical fitness, including this crazy workout we do down here called the JMEC 18. Uh, but what I wanted to mention to you today is, uh, many of you know that I host an event called Permission, which is about helping people break through their personal obstacles. And um, we've done three of those. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge amount of work to put it together. We get a, try to get a hundred people in a room and we do a 12 hour sort of crucible where we help try to get people through their personal obstacles and into a state where they can really learn and plan what happens next. And um, the first time I created permission, I sent out some emails to a few friends and I said, I'm doing this event. I really would like some help. Um, And Randy was one of those people. And I said, you know, I'd love it if you would come um, and support this event. And he immediately emailed me back and said, yeah, I want to be the first person to sign up for permission and I said well that would be great but you missed it by one because my business partner Don Pryor beat him but he was right there Um, he said listen let me come down let me help you out and he's done it for all three events now no compensation no thought of um, asking for anything other than maybe I put him up in my house at night but he shows up he does the you know he does a presentation he helps support the event um, he helps promote it and when he steps on stage which he's done uh, both alone and also with the lovely uh, Sidney Dauphin, his daughter, um, he shares what I think is a really important idea and what's been thematic in this show for a long, long time, which is that a very tough martial artist um, can also be very gentle and can use the lessons of the dojo and walk them out into life. His relationships with his children, his loyalty to his teachers, his commitment to excellence at work, uh so randy's an example or he should be to everybody who watches this call and having said that randy how you doing
1: i don't think I've. that's some of the nicest things anybody's ever said about about me sensei so thanks so much for that i'm oh, a bit speechless. I'm, I'm taken aback by that the good thing about doing those events is uh the reward of just getting to sleep on your couch uh eat your food and visit with your family and train with you is much greater than any financial compensation any human being could get because they're life experiences and there are things that change you and help you to be a better person. So I thank you as well for letting me be part of those things that are important to you. Um, every week I get to introduce Hanchi Legacy and whoever our guest of honor is, which and tonight is Hanchi Kentalik. Uh, first, I want to talk about Hanchi Dury Legacy, who is a 10th Dan, and he was awarded that by his teacher, Anthony Sandoval. And, uh, you know, Hanchi Talik knows a little bit about some of Anthony Sandoval's uh, background. Uh, he's also a member of the Canadian Black Belt Hall of Fame. Uh, we were talking about the author stuff recently. Uh, uh, author. I'm surprised that Sestrino not yelling at me because I got a stack of books that I still haven't shipped to him <laughs> and probably going to get some knuckles soon, but, but, but luckily for me, the border is still closed. So he can't get at me. But, um, uh This show has helped me. Like one of the things I'm going to say about Haunchy Legacy is that he's an honest person. Like there's no bullshit. When you talk to him, he tells you how it is and he tells the truth. And that's rung through for me as a student on this show. As we've talked to people, I think we're like into like 35 shows or something like that. We've interviewed 35 people or 36 people like Patrick McCarthy, Chuck Merriman, Wally Sloki, John Therian, uh, uh Cesar Borkowski, uh, Bill Superfoot Wallace. And all these people say stuff about Sense of Legacy that corroborates things that he has said to me over the last 30 years and when they say them i'm always like i remember since legacy telling me this in his in his living room while we were watching a hockey game um so i know for sure he's a really honest person um another thing is uh, why well, i know he's honest he never shies away no matter what people say about anything he always boldly states that he's a student of harold warden benny allen Richard Kim, and Anthony Sandoval. He never shies away from it, never, ever. I super respect that honesty. Um, Another interesting thing that I was thinking about is he often pushes his students forward uh, in front of him. And when I was in his house recently, we were looking at a video from 1976 and 77 in the Elmwood Casino at a very early kickboxing (laughs) match. And uh, Interestingly, at the end of that video, when he's standing in the ring, even though he had won his fight, he pushes his students to the front. He puts his hands behind both of their backs and he pushes them in front of him. Uh, One thing I want to remind everybody about is that for 40 years now, at this time of year, I would normally be sitting in a room at Sense of Legacy's kitchen table and we'd be shuffling around thousands of pieces of paper trying to organize our annual tournament, which won't be happening this year. Uh, It started as the Funakoshi Classic, and it evolved into the Matsumura Challenge. It's a place where most of the people that we've talked to, that's the place where I met most of them, got to interact with them, either in the ring or outside of the ring, refereeing with them, standing at the table. Um, And that tournament is kind of like a testament to... Hanchi Legacy's commitment to martial arts and where he's been and the connections that he's made because it's steadily grown. Two years ago when we did it, we had 300 people competing, like 300 people competing. That's a pretty big tournament. Like, you know, that's a pretty big draw. And the reason why they come is because of Hanchi Legacy and, and his devotion to martial arts. Uh, and the last thing i want to say is the last time I saw him, which was recently, but I'm not going to say when because we're in a lockdown and you're not supposed to see each other right now. <laughs> but the last time I saw him, which was recently, I was really happy to just do uh kata with him, 16 or 17 katas in his living room, get some corrections, get some pointers. Uh, and in the end, I was really happy to just embrace him and give him a hug and say, I love you, sensei. And hear that in return uh, back to me. So that's my introduction for Hanchi Legacy tonight. And now I'm going to talk about Hanchi Talik, who started his martial arts training in the, in the 60s, much the same as Sensi Suino at a YMCA, interestingly, but in London, not, not in Michigan. In 1972, he started training with another name that's very important to Hanchi Legacy and myself, a name, Bob Delglish. He started training with him in Sudbury, where he relocated himself and started training there in Gojiru. In 1976, he opened up the Martial Arts Fitness Center in London. Between 1979 and 1982, he competed a lot. He competed at various international martial arts competitions, placing first in the Canadian National Kai Championships three years in a row, and second at the Kai International Championships in 1981. Um, He has a long involvement in training, uh, participants promoting kickboxing events in Ontario. And in 1986, Hanshita Hans Talek became an official with the Ontario Athletics Commission. And I think we're gonna talk about that a little bit tonight. In 1985, he traveled to Japan, where he's accepted as the first Canadian student of the Grand Master, Yagi Mietoku. Mietoku, Meitoku
3: sensei
1: Meitoku sensei thank you who is the inheritor of the system uh, goju from yagi Chojin, uh, And in that same year, uh, he introduced the Meibukon goju system to Canada. Uh, he was awarded his fifth N from, who was it, uh, Hanchi? How do you pronounce it?
3: Meitoku-sensei.
1: Meitoku-sensei. That's who he received his fifth N from. Uh, in 1991, Hanchi Talek was issued a master's grade through the Dai Nippon Batoku Kai, Uh, when he had the chance to perform in front of the Prince uh, Higashi Fushimi in Kyoto, Japan at the annual Dainapon Butokukai festival. That's something that nobody else on this call can say that they've been able to do. In 1998, Anshi Talek was asked to be the Canadian national representative for the Dainapon Butokukai and he still holds that position to this day. Uh, in 1999, he was issued his Kyoshi and his 7th seventh, seventh dance certificate by that same organization, and then in 2006, his 8th then. In 2012, he was awarded the Hanshi title in Japan, and he's the first Canadian through the Dainapon Kai to be awarded that certification. In 2014, he received his ninth dan degree Black Sash from Grandmaster David Chong, who I know Hanshi Legacy knows as well. Uh, in 2017, he was inducted into the Canadian Black Belt Hall of Fame. So Hanchi Talek and Hanchi Legacy have that in common with each other as well. And I always like to give a couple of my thoughts. Um, I've met Hanchi Talek a few times. Uh, I met him at Angela Feiss's tournament uh, a few, maybe five years ago. I remember meeting him there and talking to him and a few of his students uh, at various kickboxing events. And even Sean, I think you remember once out on the docks, there was an outdoor event where Hunchy Talek was actually refereeing. Um, And most recently, just when Hunchy Legacy was inducted, that was, uh, I got to talk to Hunchy Talek a little bit there, even when we went into a hotel room with John Pearson and uh, Leo Lauchs, the four of us were in that room together. Um, Another thing I want to say is I took some time and I looked on the internet and you should really look at his dojo in Kingston. It's beautiful. It's a three floor dojo. It's a multi-space facility. It's got two big dojos with tatami and one with hardwood. And one of the things when I look at that, a person who's not committed to martial arts does not put the effort into creating a facility like that for people to learn in. So um, when I look at it, that's, that's what I see. I see a beautiful space and I see a person who's committed to make something like that happen. Uh, another thing that I know through everything that I just said is um, he's traveled. Um, you know, it's, it's not like today where we can just jump on the internet and find things uh, he's the person who's had to find the information, right. It's easier today. Um, and he's searched far and wide across the globe. He spread the word through his traveling and his teaching and he's helped other, lots of other people to develop that. And I'm super excited to hear his story. And I'm proud to have him here tonight on uh, Punch Kick Joke Chat. So Sean, take it away.
0: Thanks so much, Sensei Dauphin. And and one thing I just want to say quickly, I really love the way our intros go. Like I've really loved the groove of this. And I had a great chat with Sensei Dauphin this week. And he gave me a bit of a lesson on the difference between traditional and non-traditional martial arts. And what I loved about our conversation is things are done a certain way in traditional martial arts. And I really like the way we've gotten into this groove of introducing one another. And I just, I get a little giddy with it every time. On that note, everybody watching, we got our first sponsor, Ayip. So I'm about to read an ad that is from our first sponsor. So when you hear this ad, just know that what we get in return is that we have a full page ad now in uh, the magazine uh, that our sponsor puts out. And so we're pretty excited about that because as we grow our show and as we create this living history with our guests, Uh, We want as many eyes on this as possible. So we hope this is a fruitful um, relationship. Here's the ad, everybody. Hi, this is Don Warner from W-A-R-R-E-N-E-R entertainment.com. That's warnerentertainment.com. We are proud to be one of the sponsors of Punch Kick Joke Chat. We encourage you to visit our website at warnerentertainment.com. Get your free copy of Warriors Magazine today. We have over 2,500 items, including books, DVDs, downloads, rare posters, lots more, featuring some of the biggest names in the martial arts. Shotokan's Hirokazu Kanazawa, Goju Ryu's Chuck Merriman, Ninja Stephen Hayes, legendary Joe Lewis, and that's just the beginning. That's Warner Entertainment, W-A-R-R-E-N-E-R entertainment.com. And thanks for listening. Keep smiling. Also, this will be said three times on each show, correct? Correct. Correct. So that's hey, one uh, for three
1: before you go though i just want to say that uh I w- it's hard for me not to call him sensei warner because he, he likes me to just say don warner but uh this is really good for the people that we have on and it's good for the history of martial arts that he puts this in his magazine because it drives everybody back and they get to hear the stories from the different people that we're trying to promote so um
0: Thanks, Sensei, thanks for that. And now we're into the meat of our interview. Hanshi Talek, how are you tonight? How's things? Oh,
3: fine, thank you. So I guess I just look at the screen and talk, is that right? Absolutely, and then okay, uh, different
0: great. different of us will throw questions your way. This is all for you, this is all about you, and then I'll just kind of guide us through a chat. So why don't we start where I tend to start with most of our guests, which is, you know, I believe you were born in London, What was life like for you? What brought you into your first dojo and what made you stay there?
3: Well, uh, yeah, actually, I was born in St. Thomas. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an Elgin County boy. That's right. Uh, I know Gary is, too, these days, a transplant. But uh, yeah, uh, from the time I walked into the judo room at the YMCA in London, Ontario, I uh, just felt natural I felt at home and uh in those days my mother worked at Eaton's in downtown London mm-hmm. and I suspect that I was sent to the YMCA as like a daycare on Saturday and when my brother engaged in other activities I would spend as much time in the judo room as I could. And you were pretty young now right you were, you were seven years old is that right? Yeah that's right early 60s
0: Early six, I mean, that's that's it, right? That's the, that's the beginning here in Canada. Um, what did you, like what made you go, this is it, I'm this guy now, instead of cool, judo's fun on Saturday, but I don't care about it. And I'm off to play sports with my friends the way everyone else does.
3: Yeah, je ne sais quoi, huh? I just always, it was just my thing. I just, uh, from the time I walked into the dojo, I felt good about it and uh, I enjoyed the challenge. Um, I had a a little bit of success in the judo room. It wasn't really, you know, looking back on it, it was more of a kids recreational program. It was certainly was not a a belt structured program that I was involved in, Um, but I sure enjoyed it. I loved it. I just loved to fight, love to wrestle, get in there and do it.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, it was Um, great. And by the way, just so you know, uh, we won't be the only people asking you questions. And I did forget to mention this because of our, our new ad that we're reading is, um, everybody watching, we want your questions as well. So please write those in the chat button at the bottom. Um, and then Robbie and Andre have put up, please enter your questions for Hanchi Talik, And then we'll, uh, we'll ask any good ones as they seem timely and appropriate. Um, so you're a kid, you're, you're loving fighting, you're scrapping. And then, can you talk us through your journey as you fundamentally make your way from a judo kid who's essentially in a daycare, so to speak, to someone who's taking this seriously, looking at kung fu, and take as long as you want to make your way to Sudbury with with Sensei Bob Dogleish.
3: Okay. Well, um, so around uh, nineteen sixty seven. Roughly sometime in there, sixty-six or sixty-seven, a fellow moved in next door to us. His name was Reed Val Reed, and he was from Scotland. And uh, after I cut his grass for him a few times, he asked me if I'd like to try doing some karate. And he told me that he had studied Okinawate in Scotland. And uh, it's interesting because today I think that. Uh, It may have come to Scotland from one of the sources for here in Canada, which was the international effort to build the, I think, the Suez Canal. After the Second World War, Uh there were Japanese engineers sent to Egypt, and there were Canadian uh, military uh, there to help with the excavation or whatever. I really don't know the details. And apparently someone there had a dojo and shared karate with those young Canadians and probably Scotsmen uh, um, who were there in whatever uh, um, uh, roles they were playing. I really don't know exactly what they were doing, mm-hmm. but uh, a fellow named Howard Anastasias, anastasiadis came back from there to Montreal and started teaching karate around early 1957 and I met a fellow named McKenna who told me he was part of that group and he had done karate there as well and I kind of think that's where Val Reed's lineage came from
0: and I wondered do you have you have you done any homework or do you have any idea uh what that Japanese lineage of Okinawate was like who whose no. branch that might have been
3: I've never found any, I've never found any information on that.
0: That's a really cool meeting point. Yeah, but
3: that's what Pat McCarthy would do. right? Right. McCarthy would find out who it was (laughs) for sure. So how'd you like karate coming from judo? Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, so I started doing karate in my neighbor's basement with him and myself and a couple of boys I went to school with, we all did that. And uh, then... Mr. Reed hurt his back, I believe, and our training was done without him for a little bit, and he recommended I go join the London Karate Club, and uh, at that time, there was a dojo on Dundas Street near Rectory on top of a paint store beside the old Biltmore Bowling Alley. Okay. Anyhow, it was on the second floor, and it's they had... You know, six windows in the front, K-A-R-A-T-E. And uh, I saw that place, so I went there. And, uh, yeah, I joined. That turned out to be the Canadian Karate Kung Fu Club.
0: And at this time, did you decide to continue with the Judo at all, or did you move right into the Karate and Kung oh, Fu at this I
3: had left Judo behind sometime before. When okay. I wasn't going to the YMCA anymore, mm-hmm. I quit doing Judo.
0: So that was your taste and then when you were mowing the lawn that got you into the karate and the company yeah, pretty well, much for
3: good i had to, you know myself and a couple of friends we had like i can recall clearly putting mattresses down in basements and practicing break falls and doing the judo throws and rolls and uh getting a couple of old books and uh, trying the jujitsu out of that and it was just always an interest that i had so yeah. moving into the karate dojo was it was a really great experience, but it was a very different experience. Mm
0: -hmm. And I wonder, Sensei Suino, do you know, I mean, is there any chance you would have interacted with similar judo people at that time? Would there have been any overlap? I know you were young doing it. Yeah. I
2: mean, you know, I, I started judo in 1968, um, but you know, everything I did, all the, all the training and tournaments I did were in Southeast Michigan. Um, So, uh, you know, I, I, you know, now there's a big presence in Windsor and areas like that. But at that time, I, you know, I was just a kid doing judo. I I don't know if you ever came to Michigan, but I I, I don't think we probably competed against each other. Did you ever oh.
0: throw the mattresses down, Sensei Suino? <laughs>
2: Did you ever do the basement judo? I always throw the mattresses down, Sean.
4: <laughs> hey! Hey-oh! Hey-oh! For history's <laughs> sake, can I ask um, Sensei Talik, if he might remember the judo sensei's names or name?
3: Yeah, you know, not really. There was, um, so, you know, I, I said it was kind of more like a daycare program. There's a fellow named Chip who was probably in charge of that room.
4: Hmm. Okay, I, I just thought it would be interesting if, if I knew who they were, just, yeah. just to make a connection, but I understand.
3: Yeah. You know, it's a good question. There was a time I knew a few names, but it's so long ago, I'm sorry, it just slips my mind entirely. No, no,
4: I, that makes sense, Yeah, makes sense.
0: Um, so one question I have for you, and this this is something that I, I tend to ask of, of most of the guests in one way or another. You're in a basement with a gentleman who's starting to teach you karate that you believe he got through a Scottish lineage, through Okinawate, through Egypt. Um, but fundamentally, for the first little while, it's just you and a couple buddies in a basement. And, yeah. you know, I did start at Western with Hanchi, but then I spent the next two years of my training, just me and sensei, do in a park and in squash courts, nothing formal, you know? And then that's how I started with my student. Who's now black belt. What are your thoughts on when someone gets to walk into the glossy dojo with all the weapons on the wall? And it's fantastic versus somebody like yourself, who's got, a, what are the pros and cons of each way of finding your way through the front door?
3: Well, that's a very interesting question. And uh, I think it's easier to start martial arts training today than it was when I was a kid. I think the information is all much more readily available. Um, in those days, as someone mentioned already, there was you know, obviously, this is long before the internet, but this is before there was even a kung fu movie had not come out in Canada in those days. There is no information available other than some judo books, Bruce Tegner's books, things like that. That was at that time. So those of us who really wanted to learn, we found a way to learn. Wow. And, um, you know, we didn't give up. I guess that's that's the main thing. I guess it doesn't really matter where you start. It just matters if you give up or not. You don't give up, you stay
1: with it. Yeah. You got to go longer than thirty years, or you're a quitter. According to- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 But you know, sure. Hunchy, like, that's one of the things is you moved to Sudbury to train with Bob Delglish. That's a similar theme that we've heard of many people, right? Is haunchy uh, Legacy used to leave London and go to Toronto to train with Benny Allen? Um, Chuck Merriman said that he actually left one side of the United States and moved to New York City to learn karate, like left his wife and family behind. So I agree with you when you say it's easier now. It's definitely easier now, Mm. which makes it irritating when people say, according to uh, Kiyoshi Rice, who I know is on the call tonight, there's train tracks and I couldn't get to the dojo tonight, right, like it's (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: so, so talk to us about then that next five years that before you got your way up to Sudbury and anything notable you want to, you want to mention about your time at, at that Karate and Kung
3: Fu Club. Well, sure. You know, the first night I was there, Bob Wilcox was my coach and, uh, Bob was, uh, wearing a green belt at that time. And, uh, you know, he, he showed me how to do a low block and I said, gate Amber and, and he, he was surprised I knew the word. And I was so proud that I did, right? So right from that moment, I made a connection with Bob. And uh, it's lasted. (laughs) So, you know, it was very significant, but as a child in the dojo at that time, so I guess I was 12 years old. In 1967, I was 12 and 13, because my birthday's in June. I had the perceptions of a child. I perceived things the way a child does. I I didn't really grasp what was going on around me um, with the interaction of adults, which is what happens when you put a child in a class with adults. But I never came up in a kid's class. Um, They did have a kid's class, but it was for younger ones. So I just joined and I came in the adult classes from that time forward. Um, so having interaction with adults at that time was quite, it was quite different. In those days, men were not always wearing hats when they went outside anymore. Men were not always wearing shirts and ties, but you always did to church or to school or anything like that. Society was still at that time rooted in that, um, way, those ways that were soon to be left behind. Mm-hmm as social mores and walls were broken down, right? Uh, for me, uh, I had the opportunity of, of um, learning from so many great people and being able to see uh, so many of these guys who were absolutely dedicated to developing perfect technique. And I, I really... Um, Uh, I appreciated their effort and I tried to copy that. And I saw that for most of them, attaining a level of perfect technique was uh, a driving force in their lives. And it became a driving force in my life as well. Over the next years, the club developed. When I was a kid, uh, Tony Chong and Pel Capone used to drive from Toronto to London once a week or twice a week and train us. And I mean the dedication they showed doing that was incredible. In those days, as Hunchy Legacy will remember, you could get from Toronto to London in an hour and a half on the 401. <laughs> and uh, th- these young fellas did that a couple of times a week for a couple of years. <clears throat> After those couple of years, uh, I think Tony graduated Pell graduated, went on to law school. Anyhow, they quit coming to London. And so the London Club changed to becoming an actual club run by Londoners. Um, I guess around 1970, one day I went in and everybody was gone. And these are people like um, Holger Crake, Bob Wilcox, Doug Horton, um, Al Lynn uh, Doug Brown uh, Myron Hladniuk, Uh and I could go on there was probably about a dozen guys who I always saw at the club but one day I go in the club and none of them are there just Ron Leinstad is the only one there and so I'm a kid I don't really question it years later I found out all those guys moved over to Harold Gordon's club and Gary Prompt might remember when they came there, might not, yeah. but yeah, um, they all moved over there and uh, I, and many t- many times over the years I've thought, it's too bad none of them called me and said, hey Kenny, we're not gonna be here this week, we're going over there, but nobody told me. So I just kept going to the place I've been going to and uh, Ron basically let us run the classes and know here i was 15 years old by that time and teaching classes all summer long i loved that Mm. i thought that was a great deal of fun and uh before i was 16 years old ron had given me a key for the dojo so i was able to go in there regularly and i certainly did
0: Um, yeah. Was And so, you know, just talking about you being that age in a club more of adults, not necessarily, you know, not considering yourself in the kids' classes, was it tough? Was it a grind or were you, you know,
4: how well, was that?
3: Well, I loved it. <laughs> I mean, I loved it. Um, I was in with adults. I was in with these young adults, many. Uh, Doug Summers, whose brother Jim yeah. I know Doug was another guy who went over, right? Um, He was a guy I trained with. Well, he was, so I was 14 and he was 17 and he had a car and et cetera. And I thought he was just, you know, a great role model guy, right? So I loved it being that age, being with those guys being relatively accepted. The downside of that is of course we, had no safety gear it had not been invented yet karate safety gear and uh being a kid sparring with adults even if they were young adults i paid the price and got a fracture here and a fracture there and a fracture here and there and this side got fractured and that one got fractured and by the time i was 22 i'd lost most of my teeth (laughs) Um, and that was a result of a kid bare knuckle sparring with adults controlled sessions uh, but everybody got hit right
0: so similar question to what i asked before and then i actually want to throw something to sensei Dauphin, but um similar question that's not happening today and here you are grinning and laughing about this what are your thoughts on safety gear um, coming up the hard way as a kid who's cutting his teeth on adults versus you know I mean, yeah, adults and kids are sparring today, and that's what I'm going to throw at Dauphin for, but not without gear and not without mouthpieces. Would you do it differently, or did you dig that?
3: Um, well, we can't compare the standards of 2021 to the standards of 1968. Yeah, right. They just they just don't relate. The things that we did, the way we were raised. Um, I didn't see a seatbelt until 1970, for instance right just to put safety concerns on a uh, on a level Um, it just wasn't like that back then but as you know there's a time and place for safety gear Um, uh, my dear friend Yogi Israel I remember him years and years ago when the safety gear first came out and they were like white pillows that went over your hands right and he found out that because he lives way up north in Ontario. He found out if he left them in the car to the last minute and he brought them inside for sparring, there were like little <laughs> rocks on his hands. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so so much for safety gear, right? Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Um, what I just wanted to ask you, Sensei Dauphin, is I know that at your club, uh, the one you're sitting in right now, you don't separate the children and the adults. And I just want to talk, have you talk about your your feelings about that and see if you two can relate on that.
1: Sean, for me, you've probably heard me say things like, uh, everybody comes to class, I throw a bucket of water out and you determine how wet you get. Right. So whether you're a kid or whether you're an adult, maybe I don't swear as much, but I probably do. (laughs) You know, um, and that's probably it. Like if you if you come here and you're a kid, you're a young person. I'm going to try and teach you traditional martial arts the way I see it and the way it was taught to me I'm not going to tone it down too much I mean it's no different than if I if there's an adult here and I'm fighting with them and they're a white belt and they've never fought before I'm going to fight them at a white belt level and if they're a little kid I'm gonna and they're fighting me I'm gonna fight them at that level and if they're a white belt or a little kid they're probably going to get a couple bruises if they're fighting with me and yeah that's part of it and on the safety equipment side i think that's more a new thing like newer uh i remember fighting with sense of legacy never wearing equipment and then one day him saying we should wear some equipment because we'll be able to fight longer mm. it wasn't about us like being safer it was about us being able to fight for a longer <laughs> period of time and that's why he told me to start wearing equipment um yeah. so I don't know. I guess it's your mentality for why you're wearing equipment, right?
0: Thanks, and say, what do you think? Does that jive with your thinking, Hansi Talek?
3: Well, I do things considerably differently, but I'm not sure how many people you might have in a class. Um, You know, I certainly have uh, been separating children by age groups for decades now and had tremendous success with it. And uh, we have programs specifically geared for four and five-year-old children, then six and seven-year-olds, and then eight, nine, and 10, then 11 to 13, and then teenagers and up. And uh, some of those things are to do with um, developmental levels, what you can expect of a four-year-old or what you can expect of an eight-year-old. Certainly the exercises that benefit a four-year-old may be insignificant to an older child but yet that four-year-old who grows up starting doing these balance and control exercises by the time they're 16 and they have full flexibility and complete use of their limbs um, and hopefully in a good strong body you see the results
1: of that see i like fighting four-year-olds Han chitala because i know i can take them (laughs) Like, I know I'm going to win that fight every time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm totally kidding.
0: (laughs) So, uh, before we jump you up to Sudbury, uh, did you and Hanchi Legacy run into each other before that, or did you meet after? When did you guys run into each other?
3: I know the first time I saw Gary Legacy. (laughs) Sorry, guys. I don't know if you know how famous he was in the city of London. Like, before karate, I have a sister who's a little bit older than me. And she was quite aware of who you were, Gary, when prior to your karate days. And she was a member of your extended social circle.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, can we get her on the call? Can we get her on the <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. I don't know if we want to wake her up right now. But, um, yeah, no, Gary was well known to me. And then I heard he was doing karate. I never met him. March 15th, 1973, Hamilton, Ontario. There's a karate tournament. 1,100 students, 1,100 in the men's white and yellow belt division. We had a guy named Stefan Lutujic from London who won seven matches and didn't get a medal. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) There was like 1,600 people at this tournament. And it's night. And it's my third black belt tournament. And it's the nighttime show is coming, right? And who comes out to fight in the finals but Gary Legacy. And that's the first time I ever saw you. I saw you with a spotlight on you, walking forward to go out and fight in the finals at that tournament. Now I think you were under black belt, but you must have been close to it at that time. You don't remember which time? I can't remember
4: which time. Honestly,
3: (laughs) thanks. Well, uh, you did a great job. You won, I think. I think you won. and uh, but just your you know that was the first time seeing you. it was pretty pretty spectacular entrance man. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. But I really
1: I really want to know what your sister has to say about him. Yeah. That's what <laughs> i <want to> know. <laughs> well, it's <that's>
4: another story. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I'm glad I did good on the entrance. Really, yeah. so did great
3: in the brain too. Really. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. You know he. Gary probably had five or six matches to get to that end at least. Yeah. Maybe more. That's a lot for a given day at a tournament, right? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, Anyhow, uh, no, I didn't know Gary earlier um, into the uh, um, late 70s, early, or I'm sorry, late 60s and early 70s, uh, when Tony and Pell quit coming to London, the club Went through some changes. Ron Weidstad ended up with it. And then we ended up in a boys' club on Booley Street in London, Ontario, for about a year. From there, we went to the Boys and Girls Club in London, Ontario. And that was a nonprofit club. That was intended to be a nonprofit <laughs> club at that time, right? And we were running, we were up at the Boys and Girls Club. We had the fourth floor for probably the last of '71 and throughout '72 into June of '73, and going into a nonprofit place like that changed the club a lot. Ron Leidstad developed a great group of people, uh, including Ron Day, um, Vince Ayatt, Keith Ayatt, David Durant, Bruce Curry, Jim Grass. Russ Lovell, myself, and those that was, that was, were all people who were homegrown by Ron Leinstadt through that Canadian Karate Kung Fu Club. Uh, but when we went into the nonprofit place, Ron didn't keep a connection with anybody else. He was just running it on his own. And uh, soon after that, around 1972, he connected with the Fire Dragon Kung Fu. And that was, he found his path in life through that. Hmm. There he was. And the club though, through that process, our club really morphed from a karate kung fu club into a kung fu club.
0: And And that was great.
3: Pardon me. Yeah, it it was great, but you know, I always enjoyed doing karate. And uh, you know, for me though, as long as I had the forms to work on, I was fine. You know, I did
4: the leopard, the dragon, the tiger and crane many, many, many times in those days. I remember seeing you do it. It was, it was.
1: An- there's actually, yeah, well. there's videos out there, uh, from Hunchy McCarthy, uh, with, uh, Hunchy Talek doing stuff way back in the, in the seventies. If you go on his page and you want to see it. I think, uh, I recently watched a video of you, Hunchy Talek, uh, with some twin swords, doing something with some twin swords, possibly. Oh yeah, yeah, that was
3: back. So I think that old video uh, is from 78. And, you know, talking about how, how much more difficult was it in those days? Well, I couldn't get proper double swords. <laughs> um, I could not buy double swords, double today. Uh, you can buy them. Virt- I've, I've seen them for sale at gas stations. For God's <laughs> sakes,
0: um, <laughs> you know we had to use
3: machetes instead. They were the closest. we
0: could come to Fucking a, love yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you talked about 1972 there, and then is that when you did end up in Sudbury training with Sensei Dalglish? Is that? Am
3: I reading well, that correctly? Yeah, you know, in 19, I was, I was kind of a, I left home pretty early and I was kind of transient around Canada. In the uh, 1970, 71 winter, I spent most of that in uh, uh, Winnipeg area. I, I was uh, put up by the Salvation Army at uh, yeah. And they, uh, they took me in, took care of me at that time. And, uh, I used to go shovel snow. Um, but I was kind of transient in those days and went from dojo to dojo when I was in Winnipeg like that. I was at the Samurai, the Samurai dojo on Portage street. I think, um, it was very near the corner of Portage and Maine, which was famous at the time. Yep. Um, it's a long time ago. Yeah. Anyhow, I, uh, I traveled around and, uh, London was my base. I would come back to London and then I would be transient again. And uh, um, Yeah. So one uh, night I took a train from somewhere near Sault Ste. Marie to uh, as far as it would take me, which was Sudbury. And I didn't have a paid ticket. I jumped on the back of it where there was an open car and was not uncommon to do that in those days and uh, uh but if you did that uh, you had to uh exit the train before it came to a full stop because then you'd be in the yard and they could catch you and you get in all kinds of trouble so it seemed like a good idea at the time but it got to be a pretty long slow freezing cold oh, train ride that day Whew. and uh it was uh after Remembrance Day, it was in late November, I guess it's 71, and uh, I jumped out of this freight train just at the edge of Sudbury, and uh, I don't know where I'm going. I don't have a nickel. I don't have anything to eat. I'm like lost, and I look up, I, you know, I got to get off of this train thing and across this yard it's snowing I look up and there's a goju fisk painted on the outside of a building with a light on it I, that is- I couldn't believe it right <laughs> and uh I went and I knocked on the door and uh it was a dojo Sudbury goju kai and uh this old man came and he uh, said the dojo wasn't open, but I could come back the next morning. And he told me there was a local hostel that I could go stay at. So I did that. I went to that hostel. I stayed overnight and I came back to the dojo the next morning. And uh, it wasn't a very big dojo. And I guess the sensei lived upstairs. And he had a makiwara. I oh, I love hitting the makiwara. So I hit the makiwara a few times and I broke it. I broke his makiwara. <laughs> I had not even met the sensei yet and I broke his makiwara. Oh, so the old guy, his name was Slim. But it turns out that's Bob Dalglish's father, Slim Dalglish. Slim came up and said, oh, don't worry about it, it's okay. And I started hitting the bag. And I'm doing these running, flying kicks on the bag. And guess what? I split the bag. I still haven't met the center yet. And now I've really (laughs) damaged the place. And Bob comes downstairs eventually. And uh, he goes, cool, cool. That's great. Look at what you did. That's awesome. And we started training. And uh, then kids came in for kids' classes and we taught them. And uh, that was the beginning of my relationship with Bob.
0: That's a fantastic beginning.
3: It's, uh, you know, I thought of that story so many times over the years. And, uh, you know, I could have left that train a kilometer before, not much after, but, you know, it was time to get off, but. It's these little things in life that give you a direction that you might not have found otherwise, right? Yeah. But... yeah, so a year later, uh, the end of September, October, October 1972, I moved into the attic of that, of that building. And Bob took me in at that time and uh, I stayed with him for the next six months. Yeah, me and uh, Yogi Israel, I know Yogi, he's a good friend of mine. Yes, of course he is. You know, well, we were roommates in those days. Uh, Iz had just come to Canada. And he was, I think he's 10 years older than me. And certainly at that time, because uh, at that time at 72, when we moved in, when we were living together, I was 17, I think he was 27. And uh, <clears throat> so that's quite an age difference, right? So I learned a lot of things from yogi, some better than others. <laughs> but, you know. It was a lot of fun. And uh, it was an incredibly, incredibly exciting time because who would have known? Oh yeah, by the way, Gary, you'll remember this, I'm sure. Remember when Bob Dalglish, Benny Allen, and Wally Slokey did a seminar in London? Yes. On Glasgow
4: Street.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it was
4: two weeks after that that I moved into Bob's place with him. I just want to say, Ken, that you know, in a lot of stories that I listen to, all the people, the ones who've been in it for a long time, like you and I, their story is always of the martial arts calling them. And I don't think they realize it. your story, that sign, Del Gliche, And, you know, knowing you, not just in the past, but knowing you more now, um, I think you were being called. Seemed like it. It certainly seemed
3: like it. I had a calling and uh, I followed it. And it's never, um, you know, a lot of people who come and gone. Uh, uh, My dear wife, she says, we find things for a reason or a season or a lifetime. People come to the dojo for a reason. Okay. Some come for a season or two. And some of us are here for a lifetime. And I think I'm one. You are. And I think a lot of you folks watching right now, you're all in that same lifetime club.
4: We're 30 years plus.
3: Yeah. <laughs> 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 Shit. You know?
0: Shit. Nah, I'm still <laughs> chipping. I'm still chipping. Yeah.
1: yeah, You'll get there, Ben. Don't worry. Yeah. Don't be a quitter, Benson.
0: We'll <laughs> see you in a year and a half.
1: Um.
3: so can I tell
1: you I gotta tell you this the
3: the life-changing thing the next life-changing thing that happened in Sudbury in 1972 was the Bruce Lee boom Mm. kung fu came on television nobody knew anything about kung fu but I've just spent three years of my life practicing it Bob Dalgleish put an ad in the Sudbury Star saying, karate class, Tuesday night, 7 o'clock. Everybody welcome. 150 people showed up. 150 people answered that ad. His dojo was about 14 feet wide and 30 feet long that's where Don Gauthier started and where Don Benoit started, guys like that up there in Sudbury. They started in that room, that size. Well, 150 people could not physically fit in there no matter how you stacked them up. It was an incredible thing. Bob went and rented the sample hall and he had a microphone. We had 150 people and it went from being a hobby to being... An industry there suddenly there were there was an industry that created itself overnight and uh, you know Gary was in London at that time. I think you had the Karate Canada club at that time. And I'm sure you experienced the very same thing. Um, It was a boom and it went from zero to full speed ahead in a week. It was an incredible thing to see for better and worse Mm. because not every one of those guys who were running dojos were prepared to have suddenly people giving them thousands of dollars a month for lessons. You know, in 1970 you're running a club. If you had 50 guys in a club, 100 guys was a huge club. Well, by early 1973, they were lined up every day to come and join, well, in those days for us, Kung Fu. Mm. Yes, it was
2: a life-changing thing. Were you involved in Michigan
3: at that time, Nicholas?
2: Uh, yeah, well, we uh, I was part of the judo boom that happened here, right? Just so, you know, we trained and it was pretty good in around 68. And the AAU judo tournaments had three, four, five, 600 kids in them. Uh, so that's what I experienced. I don't know what the, you know, I, I remember when the Bruce Lee movies came out, it didn't have a direct effect on us.
4: Can I ask you, Nick, if, um, <clears throat> and Ken, of course, do you think um, uh, gonna say that sort of the demise or sort of There was a big judo thing going on. I remember at the beginning, there were judo clubs everywhere. And then when karate started to seep in, do you think they bumped heads? Do you think that you you don't see very many or you didn't see very many judo schools, say in the eighties? Do you think that was affected by karate
2: or no? I don't know, like you, I've always watched the ups and downs, right? A lot of time it has, a lot of times it has it's influenced by movies or, or these days by the UFC. Um, I think that was a big part of it. I think that there's an audience of people that don't really know the difference between karate and kung Fu and Judo, right? And so they just go where where they're called. But um, Judo's always struggled a little bit because it's not necessarily a spectator sport in the same way karate is. It's sometimes a lot harder to see, I know that may be an excuse because BJJ is not really a spectator sport either, but I've always felt that karate is much easier for the average person to watch and understand. What do you it's think, Hanchitalik?
3: Well, uh, that's interesting. Uh, it, these are That's an interesting point of view. Um, one of the points of view that I had uh, put forward in, in a couple of group sessions I was part of in the 80s was regarding putting karate in the Olympics at that time. And uh, the point of view was brought out that the Olympics changed judo forever. That judo before it was an Olympic sport had more self-defense component and more and less of the sport and judo by the center of 1980s was a well-established Olympic sport. And even bowing courtesy the budo aspect of judo was not necessarily always there. Um, it was no longer a requirement. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk at that time about the Olympics changing judo, and maybe it wouldn't be that great a thing for Karahi. Well, taking that a little further, I'm not sure that the Olympics did much of a favor for Taekwondo either, because it became, again, Taekwondo became so narrow, and there was no longer the self-defense aspect. Their hands are down at their sides, they're jumping around, facing each other backwards. I saw it, I couldn't believe it. Uh, um, if you knew, uh, if you remember Mr. Chang, Chang Young Che in London years ago, he was a fighter. He was a tough guy who did Taekwondo. He didn't dance around like that. <laughs> um, Well, it's a point of view, anyhow, that the Olympics don't necessarily build a martial art. It might create a new sport.
4: Mm.
3: Maybe it wasn't so good for judo.
4: Good point.
0: Sensei Dofan, I I know you had a thought you wanted to check in before we get to a few questions.
1: Yeah, I I just like, that's a very, I'm going to be thinking about that Olympic comment for a long, like for uh, many weeks now. I'm going to think about it it creating a, a sport. That's really interesting comment for me. Hanchitalik, um, when you and I talked earlier in the week, one thing that I just, we're an hour in, like we've already been talking for an hour. The time always flies by faster than we think it's going mm. to. And when you and I talked last, you wanted to talk a little bit about your sensei and the Dainapon Kai and your, your involvement with them and what it is in Canada and... Uh, I just think it's important that we get a chance to talk about those things with you. Um, you know, you've done some things with that organization that not a lot of people can say that they've been able to do. So, uh, how did you how did you find your sensei there, and how did you get to the Dainapon Butoku Kai? Like, what transpired there, and why are you still with them now? Well.
3: Um... Yeah, so there's two separate things there. My training in Okinawa with Yagi Meitoku Sensei was between 1985 and 1993. In 1994, my Sensei had retired, his son took it over, and he removed me from his organization for his own reasons. And uh, uh, so my association with Meitoku Sensei was from 1985 to 1993. And uh, he was just a wonderful guy who just loved karate. He just loved it. He did it every day. I, I, I met him when he was sitting in a corner doing calligraphy. And uh, he invited me to come back for training the next morning. Then I realized this was a guy that Richard Kim had told me so much about. This was Yagi Meitoku. This is Chojin Miyagi Sensei's representative in Okinawa said, come on over tomorrow morning for training. Okay, I guess I could fit it in. Um,
4: <laughs> I, I, I just can't tell you
3: how honored, how thrilled I was. As, as Hanshi Legacy knows quite well, Richard Kim was a wonderful mentor. And uh, it, it, when he gave us direction in our lives, it was usually pretty good. Um, we just thought so much of Richard Kim in those days. Anyhow, getting back to Okinawa. So Pat McCarthy had called me up and said, Hey, i got an extra ticket. You want to buy it and come to Okinawa? I said, okay, let's go. And that's how we went to Okinawa together in 85. I met Mitoku Sensei and I began training with him. And, uh, I did my very best to work with him as closely as I could and to pay attention to what he, was do- what he was doing. For this aspect of Budo, the discipline is that of forming your body perfectly, exactly as your teacher wants you to. And it doesn't really matter which method that is. It just matters that you control your body with your mind and through that you will experience this Buddha training. Um, and Meitobo Sensei was like that every day. We just He trained and it was always disciplined, diligent training. Mm. And uh, uh, I met him in 85. I spent about six weeks there. I went back in 86 for another six weeks. I visited again in 87 to 88. And in... Uh, 1990 I moved my family to Japan and we moved to Hokkaido, Japan, where I had uh, uh, I've been hired by a company to work in northern Japan and uh, um, yeah I picked them all up We sold a bunch of stuff and moved to Japan to uh, learn to speak Japanese language sufficiently to be able to study with Meitoko Sensei. Um, Meitoko Sensei spoke Japanese. I did not. I had to learn uh, so we moved to Ashibetsu, Hokkaido and uh, that's a little village in the middle of the mountains in northern Japan and I had some marvelous experiences there. But one of the things that living in Japan allowed me to do was it allowed me to join the Dainipon Kai Hombu in Kyoto. Now we'd all been members of the Kai in Canada and the Hanshi Legacy was president at one time of one part of the Potokkai of Canada. Uh, but that was a totally different organization than the Daini-Pon Potokai in Kyoto. And it took over the years that came out. But by the time I was, I was in Japan, Pat McCarthy had joined the DMBK in Kyoto. So he invited me, and I was so anxious to go, to come to Kyoto and join the organization myself. In the middle of preparing for that, I had to return to Canada on business, and my father passed away and uh, suddenly. And uh, it was a blow, that was a big blow. So going back to Japan, and going to Kyoto, and going to the tokudan, it was a fabulous experience, walking the dojo floor, being accepted as a member, going to the party with Pat. A party with Pat is always a good time, um, but it was all overshadowed with the loss of my dad. Mm-hmm. And when I think of that time, I got to say, it's always there. Anyhow, um. That was my introduction to the daini to So, in uh, 1991, we moved from Hokkaido to Okinawa. And I took an apartment next door to my sensei's home. And we stayed there for the, ne- the next year and a half. And uh, myself, my wife at the time, Sharon, and our two children, Rob and Alicia, So the kids grew up in Japan speaking Japanese. My son, Rob, loved martial arts. He just loved it. He did Kobudo Tuesday and Thursday. He did Karate Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And he said, uh, Dad, there's a guy who's teaching Iaido on Sunday. Can I go join that? So I bought him a Hakama and sent him off. And wasn't that great, huh? He just loved it. He, he just had a great time growing up in Japan being a dojo bum. We made him do a schoolwork too. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yep. Yeah. So I returned to Canada after that. Uh, in 1993, I returned to Canada. And uh, in 94, uh, when uh, Meitatsu Sensei removed me from that organization, um, I was looking around. And uh, through some serendipitous occurrence, my phone rang one day and it was Hamada Taishin, the international representative of the Danyi Pompadokai. And, uh, but he may have been returning my call. I can't remember if I called him first, but I probably did. Anyhow, um, I remember talking to uh, Hanchi Hamada for the first time on the telephone. We had met in Japan, but I neither one of us realized that then and uh, uh, he asked me to represent them in Canada to work with them and uh, I said uh, I really wasn't interested because I've just gone through this all this work I did for this other Okinawan organization just to get removed from it after all that time Mm -hmm. effort energy and expense and it was all for somebody's profit I really wasn't interested in doing that again, but as Hamada Sensei explained the organization to me and as a nonprofit group, and as I learned more about it that way, um, I was very comfortable moving into that position. But I must say, there was a point where I said to Haji Hamada, no, thank you, I'd rather not. And he said, you took the significant." What do you say to that? Yes, I did. I took this, <laughs> yep. so I had to bow and say okay. And fortunately, you know, uh, my work with the tiny Pompadokai since that time has uh, been good. I think for Canadians across the country, and uh, I continue to work in that uh, capacity for that group. It is completely nonprofit. No one gets paid through this organization other than the few head administrative staff in. United States and Japan Um, it's been a privilege to be associated with so many like-minded people who are willing to sacrifice their time money effort and energy for the preservation of classical Japanese martial arts for future generations Uh, that's our mission and to be involved with people who share that has been a true privilege and uh, I know many of you, ladies and gentlemen, on this call right now, feel the very same, that the preservation of classical Japanese martial arts for future generations is a worthwhile cause. So Thanks, keep
0: <laughs> Ranchi, that's amazing. And I just wanna say, you know, Edward, Edward Kamo and Paul Dupree, um, who asked questions around, um, Sensei Yagi Mitoku, I I think you got your answers there and we appreciate you asking those questions. So before we get into the 10 questions uh, for you, Hanshi, which we ask all our guests, it's time, everybody. Hi, this is Don Warner from (laughs) warnerentertainment.com. We're proud to be one of the sponsors of Punch Kick Choke Chat. We encourage you to visit our website at warrenerentertainment.com and get your free copy of Warriors Magazine today. We have over 2,500 items, including books, DVDs, downloads, rare posters, lots more featuring some of the biggest names, including Shotokan's Hirakazu Kanazawa, Goju Ryu's Chuck Merriman, Ninja Stephen Hayes, Legendary Joe Lewis, and that's just the beginning. That's warrenerentertainment.com, W-A-R-R-E-N-E-R. And also, uh, we're really happy to have that sponsorship, and we'll see how that goes. Sensei Dauphin?
1: Yeah, I spent some time, Sean, and I read through the latest magazine. And Hanchi Legacy and probably Hanchi Talek will smirk when I say this, but uh, there's a good article in there about Con- Count Dante. The, oh, the yeah. deadliest man alive, right? So um, <laughs> shit. Whoops, you know, <laughs> the the magazines are good, right? Like the and again, talking about it's easy today, right? Grab that magazine and just have a look at it you'll learn something for sure.
0: Thanks, Sensei, that's awesome. And um, by the way, speaking of easy today, again, I, I push this a little. This is one of my uh, soap boxes on this show. Did you like text your Sensei today and say, sorry, I couldn't make the Zoom class, my Wi-Fi is funny? Or did you <laughs> fucking move to Japan so that you could learn Japanese so that you could understand what your Sensei was telling you and get an apartment near them? Which of those did you do today? Because our guest tonight did the second one. Make sure you're not doing the first one. You know, if, if you can't get 30 minutes away to see your sensei, or if you can't figure out a way to get your Wi-Fi working, where you can literally do martial arts in your own basement with your master sensei, well, uh, someone like Hanshi Talek had to go all the way to literally Japan, literally learn a new language. We have it so easy today, people. And, and it's a beautiful thing. I'm grateful for it. But I love hearing that story, Hanchi, and and, and I appreciate it. Um, There's all the stories in and around that. Time for your 10 questions. Um, Answer as impulsively as you can and elaborate as you wish. What is the most effective move in your martial arts arsenal?
3: Running. (laughs) I run constantly. It's good for my heart and it keeps me from getting hit.
0: Who is the most influential martial artist in your life?
3: You know, in the early part of my life, it was definitely, uh, uh, well, Bob Wilcox. Then it was, um, you know, Bob Dalglish. Then it was Yagi Meitoku. But for the past many years, it's been Hamada Keishen. And he is... You know, I've got a couple of people who I want to model my life after, and I, I want to mention one very quickly, named Ishikawa Setoku. Ishikawa Setoku-sensei was of the Shōrenryu lineage of uh, Miyahira-sensei, who was the, uh, the master of their, their Buha of uh, Ryu. ishikawa Ishikawa-sensei lived downstairs from me. I saw him every day. And he was in his dojo. Well, at 5.30 in the morning, he would be out and he would run around the seawall in Naha City. He'd be back in his dojo by quarter after six and train till 7 a.m. Then he would go and eat, get dressed and shower and go and be in his office by eight. He walked the seawall at lunchtime and he taught karate at night. And I lived there. I lived there. He was... He had the main floor of the building that I lived in. He was my landlord. And to see him live this way, I learned to live as a martial artist. Mm. Hamada Tation, Hanchi has helped me learn how to, uh, you know, when you do something, you make a living. That's what it gives you. But when you do something that's for your life, that's what you give that back. And Hanchi Hamada. It's all about giving back, giving back to your society, giving back to your community. He walks the walk. He has done it. He's put his life's energy, his professional life, uh, everything he's done has been for the betterment of Budo and the development of a stronger society. And uh, he's just an admirable human being. He's a human being, none of us perfect, but he is an admirable, admirable person. When I, I attended a ceremony in Virginia Beach at the Dainipon Potokukai Garden that they have in Red Wing Park, at the unveiling of a new section that the Ahansi had donated to the Red Wing Park, And all of these local officials came forward and talked about all of the things this man had done for his community. He never mentioned a thing ever. I never heard him say anything about these things, but Mm. when I heard others speak of him and the mayor and the council person and the attorney, assistant attorney general for the state of North Carolina or something, uh, prestigious people speaking so well of him and they didn't know he could punch and kick. (laughs) Anyhow, Uh, sorry. That's a long answer.
0: It's a beautiful answer. Thank you for that. Um, who do you think is the most influential martial artist of all time and why?
3: Well, Bob Dalglish and I talked about this. (laughs) Jesus Christ would be, um, Bob had a theory that Jesus Christ had wandered to India at one time in his life and had taken up, um, is it Kavrilat? Sorry, I, don't, I can't remember how to pronounce the name of uh, the ancient Jin Indian martial art that was practiced before Kung Fu went to China. Um, anyhow, that was, uh, that was an answer that Bob Doglish gave me to that very same question. That's but for me, I I would think personally in my world, he Higona, Higona Camro Sensei. Mm-hmm.
0: What excites you most about the next five years of your training?
3: Just doing it. Just being there and doing it. You know, I just want to keep doing it. Uh earlier tonight I was in the dojo and I was doing seisan Kafa. And uh yeah, I, I still practice it. Oh, the Seisan, you know, from the Shikodach shift to We used to call it Chito Ru Seisan. I do that, but of course, I was, tonight I was doing Gojuru Ru Seisan. And I just hope that 10 years from now I'm doing the same thing. If heaven
0: exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get there?
3: Never thought of that. Um, I guess, come
1: in. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's the same answer Hunchy Legacy gave. He said he wanted to hear welcome. That's yeah, it that's <laughs> it. Well, <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Uh, who's your favorite film and TV martial artist?
3: Uh, gee, I don't really know that I have one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I am actually astounded at the variety of martial arts techniques we see in these shows these days. My goodness, they have come up with so many ways to punch, kick, choke, and stab, spear, and decapitate human beings on these movies that (laughs) I have a hard time following it. Uh, No problem. Um,
0: What martial artist, living or dead, would you like to train with the most for, let's say, an hour?
3: Uh, well, you know, um, I would love to get another hour with Kuwahara Sensei. Kuohara Sensei is uh, 96 years old. <laughs> he's 96 years old, and he still takes the falls in his jiu-jitsu demonstration.
4: Mm.
3: No mats. No mats. And he's taken the falls. He came here to Kingston in the year 2011 when we hosted the world, the Tanipon guy, Butokusai here in Kingston, Ontario, and Kuwahara Hunchi came, and just the other day I stood in a, on a brick patio where he was doing ukemi, and he was, <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, If everyone in the world could have the greatest benefit you've gotten from martial arts, whether they train or not, what would it be?
3: I think if you put it in one word, you're going to say confidence. But how about a willingness to pay the price to lead the life you feel you should? Yeah, a willingness to pay the price to lead the life you think you should seeing a lot of nodding
0: heads on the other end of the call right now Haji and our last two questions come as one greatest achievement greatest regret oh um
3: I'm still working on stuff I don't have a great achievement yet you know um I think a contribution I made unwittingly didn't mean to but I did introduce Okinawa Gojiru to Canada. I was the first person to teach it and spread it, and uh, but it was just coincidence that I was the first guy to do that. And I think that Ron Yamanaka, while I was living in Japan in 1991, 92, 93, Ron Yamanaka was making massive progress with spreading uh, Okinawa Gojiru across Canada, and I know that we really owe him a big debt. But I played my part. It was good. My biggest regret is probably not working harder when I was younger. Mm. Yeah, you gotta work harder when you're young. Mm-hmm.
0: I hear that one. Yeah, <laughs>
3: I hear that one.
0: Um, I'm gonna sneak in one question before we go round the horn and take our way out um, because we really appreciate the questions that come in. And so I'm just gonna ask this question from Jonathan Brenneman. What is the greatest advancement that you've seen in karate since you first began?
3: Well, I think the separation between kickboxing and karate is a great thing because if you want to do contact training, you really should be wearing proper equipment. Or, like Hanshi Legacy said, you won't be doing it for very long, right? You need the longer, if you want to practice longer, you got to put the gear on. Separating kickboxing allowed kickboxing to develop as its own natural sport rather than as an adjunct of karate. The first uh, kickboxing that I ever did was putting on boxing gloves and punching and kicking each other. And we trained on it from there. Um, Separating those things allowed us to really look at, well, what is point fighting? What is, and we developed continuous point fighting. And people separated kickboxing from forms practice. Which separated sport from art, mm. and uh, I like that.
0: Right on, great question, and I really appreciate that answer. Um, so, Hanchi, the way we the way we go out is that we go around the horn, and we all sort of you know give a bit of perspective on the time we've had with you, and then the last word will go to you. Uh, aside from a little bit of housekeeping on our end, and uh, everybody gets to hear the app one more time
4: later on. So.
0: Um, I
4: want to throw it to Hanchi Legacy right now. Good interview, uh, Ken. I I really enjoyed it. It brought back a lot of stuff. Uh, I didn't realize you traveled so much. I was glad to hear that. And um, I'm really happy for you that you had all those opportunities and that you ended up being who you are now. Because only you and I sort of, but it was rough for you and I at the beginning, right? It it was. uh, Yeah, uh, the teachers weren't so friendly and it made us not be quite as good friends as we should have been. But uh, I learned a lot about you today and um, um, I can appreciate why you're you're a good martial artist and a life martial artist. Well, if,
3: if I can just throw this back at you there, Gary, we didn't know each other very well. But there came a time when you closed your club and Leo Lokes, Bob Folkart, um, a couple of other guys came and started training with me because I had a place that was open and you're, you were not at that time. And the way they spoke about you, Mike Bernardo, of course, uh the way they spoke about you, the way they performed, the way they referred to you made me realize you were something special. It was obvious and the way they you know the way they felt about you, that really meant a lot to me. I saw I saw your character reflected in your students.
4: Thanks, Ken. I'm a bit- I feel warm right now.
3: Yeah, good, good. I'm glad you do.
0: <laughs> Thanks. Thank gentlemen. you. Um, Sensei Suino?
2: Well, I have to say, Hachi Talaki, like, even though you didn't bring the name up, this is the first episode of Punch, Kick, Choke, and Chat where anybody has mentioned the name of Count Dante. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh you know I know Randy takes notes on this and I love how he kind of reprises his highlights so I'm not going to I'm not going to I have a I I've been typing and I've got a whole list of great great things that came up in this conversation tonight. Um Say them. So, well, no, let me don't just Don't let me
1: hold up. Sensei, say them.
2: Well, I I'm going to say two of them and then I just want to um So but first it's really cool that you 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 describe your Hokkaido to Okinawa travels. While you were there, I was in Tokyo, so you, you uh, flew over me on your way to Okinawa, <laughs> had we known drove, each other. I drove the entire country. Oh, my gosh. Well, you should have stopped in for a beer. I used to drink more beer than I do now. We um, spent a week at the Holiday Inn in Tokyo. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, because they had free parking. Yeah. I mean, who who thinks about parking? I never, you know, I rented a car like twice in four years in Japan. Anyway, they're great. That's crazy. Had we known each other, um, that would have been amazing. I did spend some time in Okinawa, but just for short visits. Um, Let me just say three things that came up that I really love tonight. Uh, One was the thing that, that Gary mentioned, right. That you echoed. It's always the martial arts calling the great people, right? The martial arts call the great people. And then you said that lovely quote from your wife, people come from for a season or reason or a lifetime. So that was one thing I wanted to mention. I um, was very moved by the expression you said, and I'm going to make a mash of it, but I just have these two, what you do versus what you give, right? What you do versus what you give when you, it's something you're giving, you're making a life out of it. Um, And the last quote, I think all of us are going to take away um, and hold on to is a willingness to pay the price to live the life you think you should. So thank you for all of those things and the memories that you shared tonight.
0: Thank you, Sensei Suino. Sensei Dofan?
1: I put my glasses on. I I uh, I always write all these notes. I've got like three or four notebooks, like this one says, uh, good ideas start with great coffee. That's the notebook that I have right now. But uh, um, it's crazy to me how many of the people we've had on this call started in judo and stayed in judo have a super strong appreciation for judo. Um, I really liked hearing um, just the different names, like uh, even Bob Wilcox, uh, I I guess it was maybe 10 years ago that uh, Sensei Legacy and I went back down to London for his birthday. And I can't remember which birthday it was, but I think it was like his 70th birthday or something like that. And I met so many people on that day when we were there. Um, And I think it's really cool that you were like, you were super proud that you knew what Ghidem Barai was when you met Mm -hmm. Bob Wilcox and you were (laughs) super excited to be here. it's awesome, we all have something. I think it's really cool that at 15, you had a key to the dojo and you were in there teaching. Um, there's no 15 year old in my club that wouldn't want that. They're all jealous <laughs> of you. <laughs> um, uh, obviously, it's nice to hear things about Sense of Legacy. It's nice to hear when you talk about his uh, fight in 1973 and seeing him, in my mind, I. I wasn't there obviously but i can picture it like i can picture him in 1973 walking out to that ring and i wish i could have been there um but so it was really nice to hear that i like hearing all that history about london ontario and it really reinforces a lot of things that uh sense of legacy has said to me over the last 32 years um I like really i super like when we talk about it being easy or hard that when you said the twin sword cutter that you did, you were doing with machetes, that's (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty awesome, right? Um, Now on a serious note, you know, being with the Salvation Army and jumping on trains uh, to go to Winnipeg and then jumping off at the right spot and seeing that Gojiru fist, I think you're 100% right. It's these chance moments in life that, what if you didn't jump off that train at that time? How many people would have been affected by you jumping off at the wrong time and place? That's uh, something that everybody should kind of ponder, uh, those random moments that lead to things, right? Uh, Obviously, your wife is a genius, the reason, the season, or the lifetime. uh, I really liked how you described living in the mountains in Northern Japan. For me, it made me think of Richard Kim's stories and reading The Weaponless Warrior and walking down these paths and doing these things. So um, I hope Hunchy McCarthy watches this and hears about you talking about how it was a great time always to party with Hunchy McCarthy. <laughs> That's. I hope I get to party with him one day. <laughs> um, it's well, really listen, cool that you lived you know, in. sorry. At party, sorry, at
3: the party I was talking about, Pat got up and sang like a fifteen-minute-long song in Japanese language.
1: Wow! Wow! Yeah,
3: it was astounding
1: right? for fifteen minutes.
3: Yes. Yeah, oh, good. it went on and on and on. It was a, it was a long one.
1: Sorry. No, it's all good. Yeah, we we all uh, would like to hear that song. Um, I liked. <laughs> When you talked about living, when you moved to Okinawa to live next to Mitoku sensei, that's awesome. Like to just envision that. Um, it's really come clear, Hanchi, that uh, you, you see it's a privilege to work with uh, the DMBK and to keep preserving classical martial arts and moving it forward. That came, that came through. I like when you said your most effective move is running. I say that all the time in here. Just run. Like if you can run, you should just run you probably will have left reg- less regrets if you run, right? Um, uh, when you said about Jesus Christ being the best martial artist, it made me think about Haunchy Legacy seeing Richard Kim once bow to a picture of Jesus Christ and saying to him, Jesus was a great Buddha, right? That's, that's a thought that I had when you, um, and obviously since Suino said it, like pay the price that you need to to, to lead the life, you know that you should. That's something I'm gonna write on my whiteboard and that's something that's my students are gonna hear. So thank you so much for uh, being with us tonight and teaching us all these great lessons. I'm extremely grateful.
0: Thanks, Sensei Um And then I'm just gonna chip in a little here before we give you the last word and then go out on some housekeeping. Um, for me, the three things that really jumped out on me, you know, the, um, the one is just watching you and how thoughtful and present you become with your memories was just an utter treat for me. Um, regardless of what the memory was, it was as though you were reliving it. And whether you are or not, I feel the weight of those moments in your life. And it's a really beautiful thing to be a part of them uh, as you as you tell them. Um, you know, the other thing for me is when you're talking about your the people who are influential in your life, I love that you have different phases, you know, and that you currently have people who currently in real time are your role models. I think it'd be real easy at a certain point and a certain station in life. And you look at the Black Belt Hall of Fame and the this and that, and you're like, I'm, I'm good. And it's like, no, 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 I today in real time, I love that, that you have current role models. And lastly, watching you and Hanchi Legacy just say hello at the end there in a way that you maybe hadn't. Uh, I felt warm too, Hanchi Legacy. Um, it's one of the real gifts. this show Sensei Dauphin.
1: Yeah, I want to mention to Hanchi Talek that uh, you had some fairly prestigious people tonight watching you before Sean punts it back over to you. Hanchi Terrian was on the call tonight watching you. Uh, Kyoshi Adet Rice, Kyoshi Doug Knipsal, uh, Sensei Conrad Copeland, three of our senior students from Legacy Shore and Rue, Scott Bauer and John Kettleberger and Nick McLaren. So. Uh, you attract a crowd, Honchi. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: and also on that note, Sensei Copeland did say, that's a great story. After all these years of knowing you, I never realized this awesome was meant to be. And that was around you finding your way to, to the dojo in Sudbury. And thank you, Sammy Ward for your question. I do think that he answered in many, many ways uh, how he's learned to live and act properly through the martial arts, but we do appreciate the question. Um, so uh, we'll give this back to you, uh, Hanchi, for the last word. And then I'm going to read the ad again. And Sensei Dauphin is going to tell us about uh, our next two
3: weeks. Well, it's just been a wonderful privilege to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I see Dennis Butler's been watching and uh, Chris Ecclestone, a couple of Kingston residents. Maybe Dennis is transplanted to London right now. Um, <clears throat> You know, Dennis Butler is a person who inspires me constantly. Denny defeated cancer, he defeated the aftermath. He went on to become an international bodybuilding champion yeah. as well as he will receive a certificate for Rokodan and Renshi, he's already Renshi, sorry. He received a certificate for Rokodan of karate So, And you know, he just doesn't let it stop him. He does it every day. And uh, we talk about being inspired. I'm ins- my students lead me. I'm inspired by the people I get to associate with. And uh, I guess you're all included in that now. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Hanchi. Um, so before we uh, talk about next week, hi, this is Don Warner from Warner Entertainment, W-A-R-R-E-N-E-R Entertainment. We're proud to be one of the sponsors of Punch Kick Choke Chat. We encourage you to visit our website at warnerentertainment.com. Get your free copy of Warriors Magazine today. Over 2,500 items, including books, DVDs, downloads, rare posters, and lots more, featuring some of the biggest names in martial arts. Shotokan's Hirakatsu Kanazawa, Goju's Chuck Merriman, Ninja Stephen Hayes, Legendary Joe Lewis, and that's just the beginning. That's warnerentertainment.com, W-A-R-R-E-N-E-R. And thanks for listening. Keep smiling. Sensei Ofen, what do we got coming up for the next two weeks?
1: I also just wanna say, I know I keep jumping on your ad, but I want to, Kenizawa sensei is a real badass. Like if you can learn something by reading about Kenizawa sensei, you totally should. We have students in our club, like, you know, you had the opportunity to train with Hidetaka Nishiyama who is like a peer of Kenizawa sensei. Um, That's one of my most favorite pictures is seeing those two guys standing there in a fighting stance against each other, like, so, um, but anyway, I digress because, I digress because uh, you bring this up and it makes me think thoughts. But uh, next couple of weeks are super exciting. We got uh, one of the greatest Canadian kickboxing champions coming on, which is Daryl Hennigan. Uh, probably Hanshi Talek knows him. Recently, I saw a super great picture of him with a little kid sitting in between Daryl Hennigan and jean yves and I looked at this picture and I thought that freaking kid doesn't even know how lucky he is to be sitting <laughs> in between those two guys. So anyway, uh, really nice man, great champion. And I'm super excited that we're going to have the chance to talk to him and hear his story. And then man, this is a first for punch, kick, choke chat. We're going to have, we're going to have three, three on the call simultaneously. Obviously, we're going to have Hanchy Legacy, who's the one who's always on the call, but we're going to have Hanshi Caesar Borkowski and Hanshi John Terrian on the call together after that. And I'm looking forward to it because it can just be a fun chat. Like, um, I think it's going to bring forward that essence of a bunch of people just sitting around shooting the shit about martial arts. I think this was much like that, but... Uh, mm. It's not often that you're going to get three people on a call that have 50 years of experience together, right? Like they've literally been hanging around with each other for 50 years. And so I'm really excited for this call to come forward. And then, you know, you throw Sen Susuino into that, and we got uh 200 years of martial arts experience (laughs) for people. And then the slackers like you and I, Sean, who only have like 30 or just slightly less than 30 years, right? Just
0: just scratching at seriousness. Yeah, like just just trying to get to the
1: 50 year mark, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. Well, thank you so much. I mean, those are going to be incredible. And the last thing I want to say is thank you to everybody for watching. We genuinely love you all, whether you're watching in real time later or listening on any of the podcast platforms and thank you so much to the people who make this show happen robert schlumsky mike russell victoria feff justin shea alden adair andre seteshev and uh we'll see y'all next week everybody be safe
1: thanks hanshi Talek. thank you so much thanks everybody
4: okay hope to talk to you soon
1: look forward to it thank you all right hey Dwight.